Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. First of all, I think this is incredibly common, like incredibly common. I mean, how many conversations have you had in your life where someone is like, I think my boss hates me. And it's like, no, they just want you to leave. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hello, everyone. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about quiet quitting and other (laughs) quiet trends. Uh, But before we get quiet, let's get loud with an unusual check-in round. Mm-hmm. I appreciate the quiet drum roll for that. Quiet <laughs> in case people didn't catch that. It's very clever. Okay, so we're not going to do a check-in question today for the first time, maybe ever. Um, we are going to mention a listener email that we got that we thought was interesting and thought-provoking and that one of our colleagues we thought answered thoughtfully. So I just wanted to share it here. The question that was asked was, how do you accommodate for or accommodate neurodiversity and mental health concerns such as anxiety in check-in rounds. Um, This listener is like, I buy into the value of this and the psych safety that they can really help establish. And also, they can be challenging and create anxiety like when it's, you know, my turn to talk. And we were like, cool, makes sense, interesting provocation. And our colleague Meg, uh, who knows a lot about a lot of things, mentioned a couple of tactics that we thought maybe you all would want to try. So one is offering two different check-in round prompts, one that is more vulnerable and one that's less. So like option A or option B, and then let people answer whichever prompt speaks to them so that each participant has some control over how deep they go, how much they disclose, and whether they want to keep it, you know, relatively surface level. Another tip from Meg is uh, using a repeating prompt and changing every four weeks so that people know what's coming, can prepare their thoughts Mm -hmm. beforehand, and don't have that feeling of like, oh, shit, I got to come up with something right on the spot that I don't have an answer for. Um, Her go-tos for that are what's got your attention this week or what is one thing you're looking forward to this week. So you could try those in increments, maybe also telegraph when you're going to switch it, what it's going to be. Her third suggestion was to use like an in-class display software. So basically, you know, whether you do this in chat or you do this in a Google Doc or however, or you're working in a Trello board, just the idea that everyone can type an answer in and everybody doesn't have to speak verbally. If you use a tool like the one she mentioned, which is Mentimeter, you can also do that anonymously. So that 
that might alleviate some pressure. And the final suggestion from our colleague, Meg Saxby, is experimenting with nonverbal check-in rounds, like having a group stretch, listening to a few lines of poetry together, drawing, etc. Having done a bunch of somatic practices under Meg's guidance, I also know she suggests making video optional during those kinds of things. So you could do a check-in where you're like, we're going to stretch for 30 seconds, turn your cameras off, and we'll ring a bell when 30 seconds is over. So for James, the listener who asked, I hope that that was helpful to you. And for anybody else who's held the same question, I hope you enjoyed Meg's answers. I mean, honestly, I can kind of empathize because every time that someone's like, name all the meats on your favorite charcuterie board, go, and then I'm first, (laughs) I don't feel ready to play. I like that a lot. I would love to try some more of those, actually. Maybe, I, I don't know if we can do a stretching one on this show, but we could try. It'd be funny to do a nonverbal on, on a podcast. I think we should give it a go. Why not? All right. So today's topic is what to make of all the noise and media and hype and nonsense surrounding quiet quitting and quiet firing. And so I guess I want to start by asking you, Rodney, when you think about and hear about quiet quitting, the alliteration, uh, what's your what's your gut reaction? What's your hot take on what's happening, why it's happening, is it happening, all those things. Mm. Yeah, I mean, my hottest, I I definitely think there's something happening in terms of there being a, a loud and strong and big movement about talking about something, which is our obligation to do more than our jobs and have our identity enmeshed with our work. I think the idea of quiet quitting is kind of bullshit, honestly. But I certainly think that because of a confluence of events between pandemic, labor market, talent shortages, stock market, etc., I think there is a large number of people who have been like, you know what, I'm going to do my job, my actual job, and not continually be made to feel guilty for not doing a bunch of other shit that (laughs) impedes into my life. And so to me, like what quiet quitting is about is people noticing that they would like to have boundaries and then upholding them, which I don't think is quitting anything. I think that's, um, you know, exercising reasonable authority in one's job. So that's my hot take. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. It feels to me like a bit of a continuum. It's it is completely to me kind of a media craze. Not it's not like something suddenly happened overnight and now we're all talking about it like the pandemic. This feels like just a way to put a label on something that's been brewing for a long time. And to your point, some aspects of it are really healthy in the sense that like if people are setting proper boundaries and not getting completely lost in their work, that's a good thing. And there's also the other end of the continuum where I've heard about people who legitimately have like three engineering jobs full time because sure. they're basically putting in the bare minimum at all three and it's good enough that no one notices Yeah. in, in a remote work world. So there's like that kind of stuff going on. But I, I've also known it's sort of an interesting like personality thing too, where I've always known people that, you know, they either live to work or work to live. And so there's some sense of like, I'm just not here to absolutely crush it. I'm here to like, get my job done, do a decent job, and then get back to whatever it is that I really love to do. And then there are people that are like, my whole, you know, my whole identity and, and you know, value and ego is wrapped up in my performance and my, my climbing in this role, etc. So I wonder how much of this is about a shift in culture versus just identifying how different personalities show up at work as well. Yeah, I I think that's right. And you hit on something that I think is pretty essential to the conversation, which is that um, 
you know, to me, the idea that because you live to work, you're going to crush it is <laughs> in and of itself really Not flawed. Accurate. Like the, yeah. the to me, what is what is actually underneath this is less about a choice between ha- being a person who has boundaries and being a person who doesn't like that. Those things mm-hmm. are not related to performance or ability to work. They are related to the performative aspects of work. But like I think to I think to equate unboundaried total and meshed right. total commitment with crushing anything yeah. is like a is problematic. Yeah. I mean back to our previous episodes about taking breaks and recuperation yeah, and exactly. you can't go well, and hard just, forever. And, and just the fact that, like, you know, that's not how knowledge work works. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. Nobody can just, like, think real hard and be real creative hours 14 a hours a day. And if we want, you know, I, I think one of the things that's that's interesting, and to me, one of the things that is definitely making leaders in organizations really panicky about this, is that the performative aspect of work makes them feel a sense of solace. So like mm-hmm. they want they want the the signaling and the telegraphing from a workforce that's like I have no boundaries, I'm available to you at all times and all that matters is that I'm crushing this. Yeah. And 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 that that gives them a sense of like okay, like I'm I'm doing my job to extract the juice from these lemons. And yep. and so to me what what this should really be about is how do we how are we working well in mm-hmm. our roles cuz to your point like having three full-time jobs that you're getting paid for is stealing that's yeah. not great sure. and just like responding to slack messages at 2 a.m. so that your manager could be like she's really doing it <laughs> is also nonsense well i have a schedule in front of me that i want to read to you this is the schedule of a quiet quitter Mm. that I just want to run by you and see what you think. Are they a self-proclaimed quiet quitter? No, I'm going to tell you who it is at the end. Okay. So the first step is from five to eight for three hours. They rise and wash and contrive the day's business and take mm. resolution of the day and prosecute the present study and breakfast. Mm-hmm. Then from eight to noon, they work. Then for two hours, they read and dine and walk. And then from two o'clock to five o'clock, they work again. And then from six to nine, they put things in their places and have supper and listen to music and conversation and examine the day. And then they sleep from 10 until they wake up. Hmm. It sounds like someone putting in like the bare, like the straight eight, like straight hours, eight hours of work, not no after hours email, no nothing, no, no nonsense. This is Ben Franklin. Oh, Franklin. That was my second guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Einstein or Ben Franklin. You're on the right track, right? Because you can tell that this person has like a discipline in their excellence. Yeah. And I love that. I love like reading that and being reminded like Benjamin Franklin, who I think we can all agree is like a type A successful person. Yeah, he did all Um, right. It was just eight hours a day was in the plan. And sometimes it would be even less than that. And I think like, we, yeah, whenever I'm doing email at 10, I'm like, man, I do not have that Franklin discipline. Yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, separating in, in in any part of this conversation, what is necessary to truly get at is like, what is performance? Yeah. What is, yep. what is the output we're after? If we cannot be oriented to effort or hours or easily visible, measurable things that don't really mean anything in terms mm-hmm. of performance, then, then like, first of all, 
deep breath because it's scary to let go of that shit. And then second of all, well, what are we looking for? Like, what are we, what what do we have in place so that someone can't be holding three full-time engineering jobs and doing (laughs) the bare minimum? Which like on the one hand, part of me is like, yeah, go fucking get it, you guys. And then part of, because it's like, you know, there is definitely, I have a very strong fuck the man gene because the man usually wins in almost every situation. And so where there are those tiny outliers, there is part of me that's like, yeah, go work that system, man. Why not? If yeah. everyone did it, it would not work. So It'd be a problem. I, I, you know, I, I feel I can talk out of both sides of my mouth on that one. But I guess, I guess it brings me to the question to you of like, if you're going to put that sort of industrial, like, you know, clock punching, yes, sir, nonsense to the side, then what? Like, then what, what would we be looking at as a team or as a leader of a team? Well, if, I'm glad you brought it up because this has actually been a topic of discussion inside the ready, which is what do we charge for? What do we pay for? And that does become a question of what is performance and what do you what is it? What does it mean to transact with someone as an employee, as a partner, as a vendor? Like, are you are you buying time? Are you buying outcomes? Are you buying activities? Are you like are you buying some some third fourth thing? And and I do think it's interesting when you look at the quiet quitting phenomenon. I feel like that there are there are two camps. There's the camp of like, I don't really know what everyone's doing. And so I suspect foul play. Like it's sure. sort of a theory X kind of angle, which I think a lot of the trend is around. It's sort of Agreed. like we've been remote working long enough that people are getting good at it. They're in and out when they're in and out. They're getting their work done, but it doesn't feel performative. And now a leadership is like, wow, yeah. we, we don't know for sure that you're not cutting out early to walk the dog. Yeah. And then there's and then there's the other side of it which is just like is there actual evidence of of failure to perform? Like mm-hmm. are there angry customers? Are there people who aren't getting their needs met? Are there support tickets that aren't getting responded to? Like are there commitments not being honored? Right? Yeah. And I feel like that's where I come down is that at the end of the day whether you're committing to time or you're committing to an outcome or you're committing to an activity, the commitment part is the part that matters. And so if somebody tells me like I'm going to answer the phone when it rings for customer service. And then they do. I don't really care when they walk the dog. And if they don't, then we have a problem. And so I think, I think generally speaking, it is about commitments. And those are often about like outcomes or activities and less about time. Really, the only jobs that are very, very time dependent to me are ones where it feels like you are manning a toll booth or <laughs> sitting sure. at, you know, like somewhere where you're kind of in, in the flow of traffic or customers or something like that. But almost everything else is, you know, if, if you, if your head of sales can sell the full quota in a day, who cares, right? Yeah. Like at the end of the day, if there's no like, you know, extra consequences of that. So I don't know, does that, does that track with you or would you like, would you add something to the, to the recipe? Yeah. I mean, I, th- so I think it's, I think you have to look at this like role by role because, you know, your your mention of how we're thinking about this at the ready, I think, is a really interesting. It's an interesting provocation. I have long been of the opinion and my mind has not yet been changed on this (laughs) um, because I did transformation work exclusively for a really long time, is that I want to be retained as a dedicated consultant. And what I mean by that is I am never going to fill out time cards in my life. I didn't when I was supposed to, and I'm not going to now. Um, And and part of the reason for that is because in doing this work the way that 
I do this work, there is a lot of time that I spend thinking about right, clients right. and thinking about problems and thinking and reading you know, reading things that are related. And, you know, I the last large project that I did, I distinctly remember 11 p.m. one night talking to a client who was a couple of hours earlier with like my laptop propped on a sofa so that she and I could both be looking at sticky notes on my closet door because <laughs> I had an idea at dinner and I texted her and she was like, call me if you want. And I was like, okay. And it's like, I don't ever want to be punching a clock for that. I want to have the freedom to not be like, okay, it's 9am. So now is the moment to be super creative in a really interesting way for this client. And also if, if the work isn't sort of taking up quote unquote, in terms of actual meetings or activity that's demanded, the full capacity that I have I want the freedom to use that capacity to think about what we could be doing and what I might be doing. And I think a lot of the best work that I've done personally as a service person is, is not in direct response to clients. It's because... I think about them and then I come up with things for them and then I bring those things to them, none of which is based on, you know, working 45 hours a week and billing by the hour. (laughs) And so, so I think that, you know, we have to, I'm using this as an example because it's very well known to me, but I think we have to think about those types of activities because they aren't necessarily really clear and really explicit and immediately leading to an outcome. But, you know, one of those ideas might be the thing that saves that client $10 million that year. And also that idea might be trash and never go anywhere. (laughs) And like we have to have, you know, we have to have the freedom in terms of how we quote unquote measure our performance to do knowledge work if we are in fact knowledge workers. I love that. And I think that there's sort of like a Schrodinger's idea or something there where like you don't know what it is till you pull it out and try it. And so you can't really value the the time or the outcomes in the moment. The idea that you gave me when you were talking that so that is so interesting is I'm connecting the dots between growth, which is kind of the the modern drumbeat around growth is like never ending mm-hmm. and as much as possible, please. Like you literally have Apple at like $3 trillion and shareholders are like more. Sure. Um, and so that's that's a drumbeat that we have at like a macro level at an economic and, and organizational level. And then it was interesting to hear you talk about like being dedicated and, and what we do with our time because there's also this weird drumbeat that I, I see hiding inside the work, which is like there is no amount of performance that's enough. Sure. So totally. like if you're like I saved totally them ten million matter. dollars, right? <laughs> if you save them ten million on week one, it's like, well, we got yeah. three weeks to go, baby. So yeah. let's like, what else you got? Yeah, you know the the system doesn't have any any upper bounds yeah. on expectations of performance, and and it's it's literally like you know everything is about stretch goals and about more more more. Sure. And there there really is no rhetoric yet around like what if we just did a certain amount, and then this- that was enough. I, this has long been my argument, which like every time I have a couple of drinks with my husband at dinner, I like could go on a rant about <laughs> extractive capitalism. Hi, uh, this has long been my argument about quarterly performance is that everything about 
about Wall Street is about beating expectations. Right. And I'm like, what if, what if what <laughs> re- we rewarded was being in a tolerant range of expectations? Right. right. And not being like, here's what we think we can do. Now let's beat the shit out of it and beat it. And that's the only way to win. I'm like, what if there was like a cap? What if there was a cap on kind of everything? Mm -hmm. To me, that kind of constraining where there's a floor and a ceiling on your sales comp, on your, you know, your quarterly earnings report, on everything. Like to me, that gets you much more interesting data and mm-hmm. potentially much better performance over the long term and more certainly more sustainable performance and less gamification of right. performance than how do we just, to your point, always get more. Always get more than we said we would. Yeah, even even the high goal that we said is not good enough. And I, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the in some ways it is a sustainability issue and it's also like a lack of control yeah. when you talk about like we we have an expectation and now we're going to beat it, which means we probably sandbag the expectation a little bit. So we're so lying we about assume. the expectation. And the whole thing is theater, right? It's theater yeah. instead of with, you know, with your boss, it's with your shareholders and the analysts. But it's the same game with, by a different name. So, yeah, yeah I, think, I think in all of these circumstances, the lack of a clear expectation of boundaries or, or tolerances for, for contribution and for 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 performance and for what good looks like is very interesting. And I think it's just exacerbated by the fact that we know, you and I know, that so many businesses don't have clarity about any of this stuff. Yeah. And so the fact that people are now opaque and online and remote and maybe off camera or not, you know what I mean? Like it just adds this extra anxiety to the whole thing where it's like, I don't even really know how to measure Phil. And now he's free to do what he wants at the time that he chooses, mm-hmm. it, that feels like it's doubly anxious for the for the leadership. Totally. totally. And I think, you know, just to, to put a fine point on the sort of expectations thing, it's like how many performance management systems have you seen where the rating scale is one to five, the middle is meets expectations. Yeah. Four is exceeds. Five is significantly exceeds. So meeting expectations is a six. <sighs> Yeah, yeah. And it's like, how how fucked up is that? It's, it's like completely fucked up. Yeah. And and so like as a you know, it, as a person who used to go through those nonsense exercises, when you know that that's the game you're playing and you set annual goals, you think about, well, at least I would think about what I was really going to do and then I would write my goals to be like 40% less of that yes, exactly. so that I could significantly exceed expectations and get paid. Right. And it's like, what good does that do anyone? I think if anything, that's only testing my ability to game the system. I feel like significantly exceeds expectations on a rating system. It it exposes a, a, a gap, a lack of understanding, which is I don't really know you. Yeah. Because if I brought in, I don't know, like, Pavarotti to sing some opera at your birthday party. And I was like, where are your expectations, right? Yeah. The likelihood that he's going to significantly exceed your expectations are really low because your expectations are your Pavarotti, Pavarotti. right? And so like if you work with people that are amazing and you hire people that are amazing and you nurture and grow people that really have mastery and performance in their field, 
you should not be significantly exceeded in your expectations on a regular basis. Totally. Totally. <laughs> like something's wrong in that world. I totally agree. It's so dumb. So <laughs> it's so dumb. I also like one time I was in a like a senior role and went through this exercise where I had set real goals for my for my team and then met those real goals and basically left like 30 grand on the table because I didn't Woof. inflate my rating. Right. But I you was didn't like, but, but to your point, I was like, we had very high expectations. We declared what they were. We met them by this measure. No way. That is meeting expectations, which means yep. I get X. And and like certainly I could have advocated for how I was exceeding those expectations. I had like the only team that performed that year. But <laughs> It's just, it's just dumb. Yeah. It's just dumb. I do have a, I do have a thought about this though. Yes. Which is what, that I want to run by you, which is, um, I think, I think it's interesting. This is the thing that I did with a client a while ago and we, we liked it. We didn't get that far with it, but we thought it was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, hi Ian, if you're out there listening to this, I hope you are. <laughs> I miss you guys. Um, we created leading and lagging indicators around stuff Mm -hmm. that we wanted to happen. And the leading indicators was basically, are you doing the activities that we believe are going to deliver these outcomes? Right. And it was like, okay, we have a hypothesis, for example, that if every team participates in team chartering and has like a basic operating rhythm. Right. Performance will X. Mm-hmm. Half the game in terms of like how your team is quote unquote evaluated, not in it was not in like a performance management way, but it wasn't a transparent way that was actually looked at is are you doing the moves? Are you doing the moves? Are you totally. just doing the moves? Like are you showing up and doing the moves and like are you increasing your mastery of those moves? Are you becoming self-sufficient in those moves? Are you just totally phoning it in? Or like, are you dialed into the moves? And that Trust was literally process. half. Because we were basically like, hey, y'all, we are all in the same experiment here, right. which is we think if you do, we think if you push these buttons, you'll get these nuggets and TBD. And then the other side was the lagging stuff, which was more like, what are mm-hmm. the business outcomes that we think we're going to get from that? Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. I think it it maps better to areas of human performance where we know what performance is and we can measure mm. more easily. So like if you're if you're like I want to shoot better free throws or do the high jump higher or you know run a 4 minute mile, they'll be like cool, these are the moves you're going to do every yeah. day. <laughs> or I right. want to meet people. I want to go out and meet people. Great. Like if you, you want to meet a friend or a yeah. spouse, you're going to have to like go out and introduce yourself to 50 people. There are moves in almost everything. And I, I have always felt, and I know you've heard this rant before, but like so much of sales is hygiene. Mm-hmm. It's just like doing the moves, you know? Totally. So I, I love that as a way of measuring a different kind of input. It's that's more of like an activity, you know, measurement, which is which is great. And and like you like you said, that does often result in what you want. But if you are only measuring seeing people do stuff, yeah. In this in this post pandemic economy, I can see how we don't know how to track that stuff. We don't talk about that stuff. We don't know what the moves are necessarily, and we certainly can't see people doing them. So yeah. there, there's like a real fear there. And I guess 
it, you know, in some ways that brings me to quiet firing, mm-hmm. which is the other side of this, I've done of this, this coin. Have you? Yeah. Tell us about your quiet firings. Ugh. Well, do you want to first define quiet firing? Yes, I think you should. Oh, I should. Okay. <laughs> so quiet firing is like, it's, it's like when you don't actually want to have the conversation with someone about them doing a bad job. So you just slowly take their responsibilities away and or treat them badly enough that they just leave. That's pretty Woof. much it. Woof. Yeah, it's gross. It's really gross. I, I would tell you that, first of all, I think this is incredibly common, like yeah. incredibly common. I mean, how many conversations have you had in your life where someone is like, I think my boss hates me. And it's like, no, they just want you to leave. <laughs> they don't hate you. They just think you're bad at your job and they want and you to leave and they don't aggressive. want to deal with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I think that, you know, where where I am personally guilty of this, which I'm not particularly proud of, is um, when it feels to me like I have done the work of coaching and giving feedback and continually nudging around something and I don't see a change and I am not a patient person. Right. And I just get to a point where I'm like, no, I'm taking that shit away. And then I take things away until there isn't a job right. left. Sometimes. Right. There's not much And there. sometimes not. Look, sometimes the move of that is like a really good, smart, role clarity move where it's sure. like, okay, clearly, Don't do that. you know, clearly like how many times have you and I talked about having too many jobs and it's like, okay, clearly we need to take these jobs away from away. ourselves yeah. <laughs> or from these other people because too many jobs. And it's that's just like good org design. And of course that is the signal of that is that we are failing at some of those jobs, but it's not because we are failures. It's because we have too many jobs right. and reallocating some of that work to other roles is just really smart. That's not right. what I'm talking about no, here. No, 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 yeah. I'm talking about when you're reducing someone's responsibilities rather than being clear with them that they're not doing them properly in the hopes that they will just, you know, fade away. Or even just not including them because a lot yeah. of the quiet firing literature that I've looked at has been about like, oh, sorry, Rodney, I forgot to invite you to the meeting. Yeah. You know, like you're just not included anymore. And it's not even, I haven't even formally pulled you out of anything. I'm just kind of like boxing you out. Yeah. And and I think what's really wild about this is it feels like this is a phenomenon based on an inability to to get into a high candor conversation and and to like be, you know, be in real decent human connection with another person. But also it's a really weird combination that this is emerging as a trend or a pattern at the same time that quiet quitting is because if you quiet quit and then I'm mad about it. So I quiet fire you. Mm -hmm. Where are we? Yeah. (laughs) Like we're as far from productivity and health as we can possibly be. Yeah. Hopefully we're not in the same organization. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because otherwise, like you're bare minimum in it and I keep lowering the minimum. On yeah. You. Yeah. And that's that's just like inefficient and 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 ridiculous like, and ultimately leads to a lot of a lot of sadness, I think, which is, as many of you listeners know, like one of our main goals with all this brave new work work is like, let's just get all the unnecessary agita and sadness and friction out of work because it doesn't need to be like that. Yeah. I, yeah, I think that the, the quiet firing thing also (laughs) brings up for me just like a systemic reality, Mm -hmm. which is there is of course an element of this, which is just being passive aggressive or managers not really having the 
skill or capacity or courage or ability to have direct conversations. I've done all that. Yeah. And to be clear, et cetera. Like that's absolutely in the mix. And I, you know, I would say my experience is that what I just described is the majority of managers. Like the number of conversations, of advicey conversations that I have where someone is like, what can I do about this situation? This person is, and they describe this like litany of the things this person isn't doing and what they've tried and how they've had it, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, have you told her? And it's like, no. And I'm like, cool. Maybe what can I do other than that? What can I do? Literally anything. What if I moved to Amsterdam and I'm like, or, and I'm just, I'm just spitballing. Spitballing. Maybe just have a conversation. Mm -hmm. So like, look, I think that's more than half the population to begin with. But where I will let all of us off the hook is also that in a lot of organizations, there is a really high level of HR process around firing people Oh yeah, that makes having regular ass human conversations more difficult because you're mm-hmm. supposed to be documenting things and you're not supposed to be saying certain words. And like, there's a lot there that makes it feel both higher stakes and more formal and just less attainable, especially if you are predisposed to being conflict averse to begin with. Right, right. And in a lot of places, it's super hard to fire someone. Like it's just legally, the the number of hoops to jump through just to be able to say to someone, I don't think this is working out. What can I do for you so that you can go somewhere that it would work out and have that just be the conversation. <laughs> I don't know a lot of companies where you can do that without getting no, in totally. trouble. Totally. Yeah. And to your point, there are definitely places on the planet where it's so hard that the more practical thing to do is to box somebody out. Yeah, of course. And just be like, you know what? Eventually you'll go somewhere else. <laughs> like yeah. I'm going to make it your call instead of mine. I mean, when you work in any kind of bureaucracy, it's like if they quit, you win. You have mm-hmm. won. Because you don't sure. have to pay them severance. You don't have yeah, to worry yeah. about getting sued. I mean, they can still sue you, but if they resigned of their own volition and there's no it documentation, helps. you're probably good, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. it's like the end game for underperformers, the, I should say, the preferred course for underperformers is always their resignation. Yeah, yeah. And so that it, that makes quiet firing make a lot of sense. Yep. Yeah. Because like if I can just make their life just miserable enough that I'm not doing anything illegal, but that they'll be more likely to leave without me having to fire them, that feels like great for everybody, except it's actually great for no one. I you know, it's funny as you're talking, I wonder how much having a not so aggressive compliance state as we have in the US, where we have kind of like fr- free yeah. to hire, free to fire, free to go wherever you want, combined with a non- like healthcare that is not associated with employment totally. would be so transformative in this area because I feel like a lot, a lot, a lot of people that hang on longer than they should are hanging on for complexity around that sort of stuff. Totally. Where it's just like, you know what? These benefits are good. Like, I don't know if I take a break or if I like, then I'm going to lose them. I'm just not going to, I'm not going to do it. And so I'm going to stick it out in, in sort of a, a subpar condition. And I think on the other side too, I mean, I've, I've had this situation myself where it's like, this person is in a bad spot. Their work is hot garbage. And (laughs) 
I'm not going to fire them right now and put them yeah. in a situation where they have to pay $1,800 a month for right. Cobra. Yeah. And they're unlikely to get a job for six months for reasons. And it's yep. like, I think that puts, it, it certainly introduces a factor that has nothing to do with, with the work, work right. and the fit in the system that, that is n- not helpful. No, it's fully like a human, it's a humanity vector that is being laid over work that is totally inappropriate to put on you. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, cool. You're responsible for this person's life. Yeah, this person's going to die now. (laughs) And it's like, "Mm, that doesn't feel fair. That doesn't feel like the way we should build a system. Yeah. This Uh, person now has to move back in with their parents because they didn't like hit your deadlines. Right. Which is just bonkers. Not a responsibility manager should have to bear. No doubt. Um, is there anything we can do about either of these phenomena, quiet quitting or quiet firing? Do you have a preference of which one to fix first? I mean, this is where I would really love to see some of the HR folks. I rarely turn to HR, but I'm turning to you now. I feel like there is you know, HR is being enrolled in a lot of spots to like, quote unquote, deal with this. Yes. And like, you know, leaders are pulling in their BPs to go like, what are we going to do about this? Qu- oh. how, how are we going to know? How are yeah. we going to know if they're working? And like, how are you, how are you HR going to figure out if people are working? Which is like, there's so much wrong with that question. Smoke we them can out. just keep, we can just move right along. But What I would love to see, because this is not a thing where managers are just going to overcome everything you and I just talked about in terms of their own socialization to familial systems that are conflict averse and society and benefits and the legality of, you know, living in an incredibly litigious society in America. Like, we're not just going to go like, you know what, candor, you guys, that's that's how we fix it. When you put it like that. Let's just do that. Like, that's stupid. And we're not going to say to the people of the workforce, don't quiet quit. Because like, for the most part, that's just nonsense anyway. What I would, <laughs> what I would love to hey, see... Hey, out, everybody. Yeah, just stop doing that. Because like most of you aren't doing that. Most of you are just tired and you're not, you know, responding to your boss at one o'clock in the morning because you've realized that it gets you nothing. Keep it up. Um, what I would love to see, like the people ops people in organizations doing is 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 actually helping teams to change ways of working that really help with this so it's like i would love to see our people ops people being like okay forget whatever nonsense performance management thing we have to do at the end of the year cuz reasons here's a really easy lightweight weekly way to give feedback or to check in, not even necessarily on like whether Rodney's attitude is bad, but like how how are we doing as a team? How did we do this week in terms of shipping? How was the vibe? What could have been 10% better? I don't know. Bite-sized micro feedback stuff that can be easily deployed to teams, helping with like more transparency, using things like tooling so that we are looking at work moving through the workflow as opposed to hours in the office or keystrokes, meta, mm-hmm. I'm looking at you, or other nonsense like that. <laughs> like people are gonna people are going to naturally measure things when they're paranoid. I feel like if if the people ops folks are being called into this, like don't let them measure trash. 
help them to understand that, okay, like looking at the projects that we committed to deliver this week as a team in a public space and having real visibility into that and noticing when things are stuck and questioning why, that's measurable, but it's real because it's tied to something yeah. material. Like I, I would just like to see the folks who are being asked, how do we, how can we make sure to not fall into the compliance and bureaucracy trap and instead to offer some new ways of working that are more fit for a hybrid world and are more fit for knowledge work. Mm-hmm. What would yeah. you, what would you add or subtract from that? I would agree. I think that it's, I think the easy instinct for people ops and for leadership right now is to be like, we need measures of how everybody's doing. So we want to go to the, we want to get data sources on basically like Snoopware so we can see like who's working how many hours and who's doing what keystrokes and who's doing what on Slack. I think that's the natural instinct. I think it's like half off from what you should actually do. So to your point, one half of the puzzle is if you can install ways of working that make work more visible and make feedback more possible and like open up the flow of information, that's obviously ideal. And even mm-hmm. if you can't do that, I'm reminded of the work that Henrik Nieberg did for Spotify and that has been going on in places like Birdsorg. Any of these systems where you have a lot of really empowered teams at the edge, they tend to over time develop a kind of a signaling practice, which Mm -hmm. is they have some set of questions that teams answer on a regular basis about themselves Mm -hmm. that send up like a red, green, yellow flare about these different variables. And it could be Mm -hmm. like, like, like you said, like, how are you feeling right now? What's the energy level like? What's the, you know, do you feel like you're getting done what you're trying to get done? Do you feel like everyone on the team is showing up? And basically these teams in, in these systems would just enter that information on some rhythm, maybe it's monthly, maybe it's bi-weekly, whatever it is. And when a team's rating was like significantly negative, that would trigger a coach Mm -hmm. to go check out what's going on without any authority to punish or fire or control, but just to check in and be like, hey, we noticed that you guys are like running kind of red right now. Like what's going on and how can I help? And it's an intervention rather than a punishment. And, and ideally, like in those situations, you end up figuring out what's really going on. But instead of trying to do it by keystrokes, you're doing it by teams doing their own sense making mm-hmm. about how they are and where they are and what's going on. And I think that's there's something there that I don't see often in traditional corporate America around like letting teams signal when they need help rather than looking for the teams that you want to punish. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really wise. And I I also think to your point about support, you know, one of the things that's usually missing from any conversation around performance is the how. So it's really right. easy in all of these articles to be like, you know, the media loves to just be like, well, these people are lazy and these people are monsters. And it's like, well, that might be a little bit of an oversimplification of what's really going on. <laughs> and given the amount of labor refactoring and shifting that we've had in most industries in the last 18 months, there there is probably a pretty significant part of what's going on that's about people not actually knowing how to do their jobs because exactly. they got a new one and no one was there to train them because the entire team quit. And now they came on board to like, you know, an office full of ghosts. Right. And 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 so a manager being really clear and candid about what they're not doing right is like not likely to, to move the needle a lot there. Yes. And so, so, you know, what I like about what you said is like, 
more, more tools, more space, more workflow around asking people what they need, which is like, you know, maybe they need some training or maybe they need a four-day work week or maybe they need to be able to shadow someone who's done this job before because they showed up on Monday and their boss had quit, which is a story I like, keep hearing on Reddit. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, getting at the how of that, like there, all of the literature to me is about identifying the gaps, the gaps in hours, the gap in effort, the gap in whatever. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. I guess, if you must, if you must look at people's security badges to know when they were in the office. But (laughs) more interestingly, once you have that gap, what are you going to do about it? And mostly the answer is pay them to fill it or fire them. And I'm like, neither of those things is how you close gaps in performance. Right. Yeah. That's, that's just pushing the food around on the plate. Yeah. And I I think I think you're right. And I love the idea of asking what people need is going to is gonna unlock ideas that they don't presently have about what to do. Yeah. It, it really connects to, the, to our big question that we always go back to, which is like, what's, what's stopping you from doing your best work? What do you need is a similar question, spiritually. Totally. But what's also interesting to me about this is that the conversation you and I have been having offline a lot lately is about clarity and about the importance of clarity and how it's kind of like a pretty central thing in all this work that we're doing. Mm-hmm. And and what is wild is how much, how challenging it is to actually have 100% clarity in a remote work world with this much chaos. Yeah, it's like we Like we do the best we can do at the Ready and Murmur. And I still routinely run into situations where it's like, oh, we didn't have enough clarity there. Oh, mm-hmm. we didn't have enough clarity there. It, you you can't overdo it. Essentially, yeah. it's one of those things where you think you think as a founder, as a leader, as a team leader, as a manager. Like I'm, I've said this five times. I'm done. I really, I, I've, I've decided it's basically like a bottomless pit type thing. <laughs> like yeah. you just, you just have to keep. It's, it's like a four thousand weeks kind of thing. Like Oliver was talking about. Like you milk the cows every day. I think you, you create clarity every day. It's yeah. never done. Yeah. I, I feel like that has always been true and overlooked mostly. And also in a hybrid environment, just like also think about how much data we're missing. Oh my God. You know, having not met our colleagues, having not ever, you know, seen like full body language, having like not, you know, not being able to see micro expressions. If you assume that in absence of clarity, all parties are creating their own narrative because that's the human condition. Yeah. If we're in a room together and we know each other really well, there's a higher likelihood that there's similarity in that narrative. Yeah. When we're totally missing the data of like having ever been in a room together or knowing anything about each other's perspectives, real high likelihood of totally different assumptions coming out of the murkiness. So I think to your point, it's like, um, you know, between being remote between the level of churn in most organizations. So we don't have a lot of long-term relationship capital built up and just knowledge of one another's points of view. I think the, the space for messiness and obfuscation and opacity is just incredibly large. Hell yeah. I mean, we're really good friends and think about how much less you like me remotely. 
And then now imagine that we'd never met and we don't even know each other. You know what Uh I mean? Like it's just brutal. And and I think missing all those context cues, all those style cues, just the energy of of having that is really, really rough. And and for folks that don't do, I mean, you know, at the ready and at Murmur, we do a very expensive gatherings (laughs) to try to get at that. But if your company doesn't or can't do that, you know, I feel for you. Like that is that is an uphill battle to be sure. And it feels like, you know, part of me always is like when we have these kinds of conversations is like, oh, like it's so much less, it feels like so much less fun to get clear on something than to just get drinks. But like that's, that's the reality of our situation right now is that we can't just solve it. We can't solve a lot of things that we used to solve with vibes. And so now we have to solve them with written down things that are really specific which I know seems like kind of a dental appointment, but will save a lot of pain. I mean, to be fair, I did once have a luxury brand write down their user manuals and then read them while drinking. Nice. And that was like a great combination of See, the clarity, the documentation, and and the drunk. I love that. Always <laughs> drinks with user manuals. Always yeah. drinks. Yeah, that seems like a decent place to to draw things to a close on this, at least for now. I feel Great. like this topic is going to keep building up steam. It seems catching right now. So I'm hoping that if, you know, if the listeners are bumping up against it or they're finding new edges or new angles on it, you know, write in, let us know, and hopefully we can dig in a little deeper on the next Quiet Quitting episode. Amazing. All right. Uh, yeah, I would definitely be down to hear some stories from what you all are seeing out there every time I hear one it kind of boggles my mind. So write podcast at the ready and give us, you know, your three line dank nug of your quiet quitting or quiet firing story. And while you're on the internet, leave us a review, please. Especially if you like what you're hearing. But honestly, even if you don't, just leave us a review anyway, because we really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Loud review. All caps. (laughs) Quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good. As always, Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work and maybe not quit, uh, you can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at the ready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. <laughs>